Most undeliverable mail is beyond unremarkable, as you can imagine, crossing over into the territory of Dole. A series of mundane correspondences detailing travel plans and financial matters, or even, dare I call them ordinary, emotional matters that are no more interesting to those uninvolved than the nocturnal adventures of others such are dreams. Of course, every rule has its exceptions, and that is the case with the undeliverable mail that never made it to Westermark Manor, so named for the surname of its former inhabitants, scattered on the winds like embers after the fires. The second correspondence is Daniel Westermark's journal sent to the manor seemingly due to the fact that it was his last known address and on the assumption that it would be forwarded to any living relatives after the destruction of all but the administrative wing of the asylum where he spent the last of his days, a place where he presumably would not have been allowed a pen for fear he might hurt himself. The events described take place simultaneous to those in Madeline's account. Except these two accounts, nothing is known about the last days in Westermark Manor, and in the same way that Madeline's account does little to illuminate the events, so too does Daniel's journal contribute to the confusion. The journal was found next to him the morning after the fire, which he survived due to spending the night in a sensory deprivation tank. When rescuers approached Daniel, they were met with hostility, which they attributed to confusion. Although once Daniel was restrained and his journal was delved, the words inside were used to build a more robust justification for his institutionalization, despite that his ranting would have been sufficient. I can add no further pertinent context and will begin reading the journal now. November 1st, purse and heart lightened, I am home again, and yet, I suppose nowhere will feel like the old manor, like my true home anymore, and the sooner I accept this, the closer I am to my own personal peace. Common threads, I hated the previous decor, chosen by my mother 20 years ago upon moving in. I found it terrible outside of just being shabby and old-fashioned. But similarly, I hate the current ornamentation which Morgan and I let Madeline pick out, for it gave my dear sister something to do, a way to feel useful, and good practice, for throughout her life she will be expected to keep up on the trends and fashions, just as I will remain excluded from the same. I've always wondered if I would have a flair for such things, but father always used to say that this is the realm of women for they are more sensitive to their indoor environments, so I will abide by my sister's chosen wallpaper. It is no matter, I will no more offer Madeline an opinion than I would of my mother. She is delicate, and it has occurred to me recently that, as an older brother, I have been negligent, perhaps because of Adeline. Now with mother gone, my father a voice in my head, and my living sister in a nearly perpetual agitated state that occupies a considerable amount of Morgan's time, it occurs to me that the fragility of the fairer sex is frightening to me, although perhaps more so is my expected role as their caretaker, a position which I only ever seem to fall inadequately short of. I want to ask Morgan if he feels the same way, but more often than not, he is in Madeline's company, and she seeks him out, meaning that, even should we find a minute alone, us brothers, she is liable to overhear, which could entice in her a fit, and at best cause my sister undue hurt. Besides, if he is not, I will have revealed in myself a shortcoming, a vulnerability.
November 2nd. So strange, I seldom think of Adeline, for I was young when she departed, and it causes me sadness. But to do so seems to have summoned some of her essence, for in my tour of the house, a cursory examination to ensure that all is right with the place. I have found in the cellar the tank father made for her to calm her fits. Made to be lain in to the exclusion of the senses, for even the touch of the warm water becomes neutral very fast. The tank has been below my feet this entire time, forgotten. Father let me try it one time when I was very young and showed me how it works in detail, explaining to me the entirety of the engineering involved. It is disheartening to me that while I remember the warm water and the still quiet of immersion in the tank, I can neither recall the functioning of the knobs which fill it, nor the cleverness of its design, utterly lost the details of my father's ingenuity. It did not seem like the kind of memory to hold on to at the time. The afternoon was so mundane. But upon discovering the tank, I would love nothing more than to relive just such an ordinary time with him once again. Although I am unsure if I measure up to what his idea of a man is. November 3rd. I did not intend to revisit the cellar. So seldom have I ever been down there in my entire life. But I heard someone below calling out for help. This puzzled me as I could see Madeline and Morgan cozying up to each other, laughing at each other's jokes. We have all been closer since the fire. What manner of intruder trespasses in the house of another only to find themselves in enough of a bind to call out to the owners for assistance? A desperate soul, surely, I supposed. So I rushed to meet the wretch. But when I went down there, I found no one. I looked in every corner, taking my time in spite of the eeriness of a single candle in a room such as it was. For like a petulant child, it is impossible for the cellar to be quiet. And there are dust and cobwebs everywhere. And as I looked for the errant intruder, it was Adeline's voice that I heard. But who among us is so distinct in their voices, especially children? It was a trick, surely, a memory hiccup. But her voice got louder as I got closer to the tank. She told me to get in. I dashed upstairs instead, where the shadows do not transform everything into unworldly spaces and voices do not arise. For I feel no terror for the cellar nor the tank, but fear for my sanity is something I shan't abide. November 6th. Apparently I have taken up sleepwalking, for in the middle of the night, I awoke to find myself next to the tank, which was full as though awaiting my immersion. Whispering to me were voices. It is unclear to me whether these are what drove me, or if I arrived by that wretched enticing object on my own. It was Adeline's voice, but in chorus with itself. Whispers from when she was vital and in good health, when she was very small, and from when she was sick and suffering, as well as the voice of a grown Adeline who never came to be. They told me to get into the tank, that I would like the water. I emptied the basin with only an afterthought of the waste, letting the water flow off to nothing. I asked Morgan if he remembered the thing, requesting his presence in the cellar. He put me off. No one else cares. I am hardly taking liberties. 
if tomorrow I begin the task of removing the abhorrent object from our house. November 7th. Morgan left rather abruptly and with little explanation. He is going west, mumbling about finding a savagery to match his own. Tomorrow I will work in earnest on unburdening myself of that menace of a tank. Even now in my chambers, two stories above the cellar where the dreadful thing dwells, it speaks to me in my dead sister's voice. November 10th. Now Madeline is acting odd, or odder, I should say, since she has always been a bit unusual. Despite her looks, I fear for her prospects. Would I abide by a strange little wife going about in a world separate from my own? I suppose it would give me agency and a certain amount of privacy, or not, considering that she came into my room last night, crawled into my bed, and called me Morgan. Perhaps I should follow him west and be done with Madeline and Westermark Manor and the loathsome tank in the cellar as well. Her prospects would bloom with such a fine house to offer as this. Although I cannot trust her to select for herself, she is gentle and at exceptional risk for getting duped. November 12th. I found myself in the tank, though under the most unusual of circumstances. I was downstairs with Mr. Newman, the gentleman whose removal company was hired to remove the burnt debris of the manor after the fire, including our parents' charred bodies. We were examining the tank for its extraction. He asked me if I had ever tried the abominable thing, myself, as we looked down at it. I answered that I had a long time ago and explained father's purpose in constructing it. He pointed out the wisdom of such a device, comparing it to miracle healing springs bathed in to cure all manner of ailments. I was in the process of agreeing that the science of it was all very interesting and was ready to ask for more details out of politeness more than curiosity, only to find that an unknown quantity of time had skipped and I had undressed and immersed myself in the tank. Mr. Newman was gone. It's not as though he would have remained while I disrobed, which, remembering nothing, I can only hope that I did outside of his company. It is much worse than this, though. I awoke to violent flashes in my mind, committed by me, although the images I was conjuring would have left evidence of which there was none. I am unsure at what point he left. Unknown, also, are the specifics of what had occurred in his presence or absence. Until I dressed and went back upstairs, I was utterly unaware of the time, since there are no indicators of such in the cellar. The hour approached midnight. I had spent the entire afternoon and evening in the tank, with no memory of the man's departure or any of what followed. Ah, what, if any damage, have I done to my reputation and that of my family? Additionally, and this question burns much brighter for me, what was it like to be immersed in the tank for such an extended time? The manner in which I found myself there was such a shock that I rushed away. Now I am safe in my chambers and once again two stories above the wretched thing. I am relieved and more determined to rid myself of the menace that is the tank, but uncertain of my ability to. This is both due to an ever-growing curiosity, an itch that must be scratched, and that I fear that whosoever I bring down to the cellar with me will be witness to scandalous behavior that is beyond my control. I, the unwitting deviant. November 13th. 
I went into town to speak to Mr. Newman, preferring to address any violence or controversial behavior, if necessary, rather than having it hang over my head, festering. He was puzzled not by my audacity, but that a gentleman such as I might let a date slip in my mind, and he confirmed that he would be over to remove the tank on December the 8th at noon. I shook his hand and thanked him, giddy and elated at his mundane vision of me despite that I was unable to offer a satisfying explanation for my lapse that required I confirm our appointment, since I was not there to change it. Surely he finds me odd, but there is little remedy for that now, so I took my leave of him as gracefully and quickly as I could. November 15th. Whispers wait around corners. If my heart is not in the cellar, it is not in what I am doing either. The dry world above holds nothing for me. The world below is infinite. November 20th. I got in the tank, this time of my own accord, nearly, for there were the three voices of Adeline. Whispering more than prompting, words almost inaudible, but all that I could understand were that the voices proselytized the virtues of the tank. I half expected to find it full, all set up for me already when I came down. I reminded myself that it does not have a mind of its own, rather that my mind is going through an unusual period, a phase I expect will pass, and despite my efforts to not indulge it, I can no longer continue as I have been and expect anything to change. Thus why I folded my clothes atop the cobwebs and entered the strange waters. Once inside, the water was pleasant in an all but incomparable way. If only my bed could offer me such comfort, I would be the most well-rested man ever to have existed. Everything was warm and all was quiet around me. The sensation of floating eased all ills. My mind was, even if ever so temporarily, still. And when I got out, the voices of Adeline were no more. I do wonder if this has to do with the very delectability of the experience of being in the water, as if the quietude were derived from the irresistibility of returning to that tank, a silence of sirens. Of course, that is ridiculous. My mind was soothed by a curiosity satisfied rather than outside forces sated by their ability to convince me to indulge a very nearly unwitting return. November 25th. Madeline roams the corridors at night, interacting with apparitions and reacting to phantom fire. I have written Morgan requesting an opinion on what is to be done with her or his return, knowing that his original intention was to bring her out west with him where, if nothing else, she would have privacy as a cloak for her hysteria. December 1st. I find myself in the tank every day anymore. Given the choice between the tank and sleep, I will choose the tank. The voices of Adeline have transformed into something more soothing, something wet and otherworldly. The once indiscernible words have given way to truths about Morgan, Madeline, and me, about the manor and the world. I struggle to remember them once I am out of the warm waters but I want to constantly, and I crave their wisdom. 
December 5th. I have written Morgan once more. I have no time for Madeline's crazed ramblings unless my response is guided by the voices from the tank. I have no time for anything, no patience or focus for anything other than the matters I share with whatever entity it is that speaks to me. My only friend in the absence of my brother, who left a numbness in my heart, not only when he left, but when he turned his attention to our sister, though the heavens know she needs it. The voices tell me it will be okay. Even as they obliterate thing after thing, world after world, I will be their human pet. December 6th. I was in the tank, idly listening to incoherent whispers, when a clearer voice than ever I heard before, certainly from the tank, but also possibly ever, told me to keep my eyes closed and lay still. I was being tested as its hideous and creepy denizen found its way between my toes. Its thousand feet, each felt in chorus as they made an impact on my own. I kept my eyes closed as commanded, but from the way it moved over my body, it felt like some kind of footed larva, which caused me some disquiet. But we love each other, and I want to do what the tank wants of me. We are entwined, and as such, surely it was aware that all of me that existed prior to our slow coming together would be repulsed as the tiny creature crawled up my leg and circled my navel, only to find its way slowly to my neck. But the part of me that was in constant rebirth could not wait for the thing, invisible for my sightlessness, to be inside me. For now, though, I must be satisfied with having been teased and the torment that comes from my strange and nameless need that cannot be articulated. December 8th. What a time I had this afternoon. More even than we can all say day to day, I am not the same man I was yesterday. And yet, though I have now done things and let things be done to me that my old self would find unforgivable, the man I was is one of the dead, and I feel clean. I was told to lie still once more. Oh, how I have come to enjoy being commanded. How I savor the perfection with which I fulfill that which is required of me. I asked if I could keep my eyes open this time, correctly anticipating the return of the crawler. I could feel the tank's driving force crawl the pathways of my mind, examining how I would react to what was happening next. I was told that it was desired that I watch. I found myself aroused as I never had been prior, as the thing crawled through my toes once more, impatient to find its means of ingress, even if this meant my own death. The little devil might, at one time, have caused me a fright. Its body was armored in little overlapping sections that let it move. This defense was clear above the pale, wet-looking flesh with bright blue veins close to the surface and somehow dangerous-looking. It had beady eyes so dark as to be infinite and more attractive for being upsetting. If I could, I would draw a picture of them here in this journal in order to look at them, but illustration would not do justice. It had legs all along its body, bland and stubby. Nothing has ever felt so good as they found their way across all of me, including my eyes and lips. Everywhere they ventured, I anticipated a point of ingress. But this expedition all over me was a reconnaissance mission of sorts, for, led by its little antenna, it made its way back to my stomach, pausing above my navel before plunging in, pushing down until the flesh yielded to it, and I felt its entry on my spine and in my bladder and all the way down to my bowels. Its legs grew inside me, curiously, 
I could feel them do so while simultaneously seeing and feeling the dark cavern of my own innards as the thing and I made our way to my spine, where we grew that we could coat each bit of bone. Our spine became our base as the appendages grew to line each nerve and vein until we were one being inhabiting all of the same place and inseparable. Every previous illness and weakness I ever experienced burned away at the vicious yet delicious fusing. And, despite myself, I found that I feared I would faint before realizing that this was not something that would happen to me again. I am become all that I ever envied in Morgan. Oh, what wicked timing that this should have been interrupted. Such folly need not have occurred. For who should have appeared but Mr. Newman to remove the tank? Obviously not a service that I wish to employ any longer and had not wished to for days. But the viciousness with which I rose upon his interrupting surprised each of us, the interloper, the entity, and I, equally. These are crimes which I hesitate to document. However, we have decided that, this being a private journal, I should write to help me reconcile who I am now that we are we. All the violent visions I had when I first met Mr. Newman came true but no longer in a flash of blood here, a disappearing body there. No. I rose out of the tank and lunged at the poor man. Ah, innocent that he was, we all must feed. I tore at his flesh with new nails that I had not had prior to the tank. The kind of thing that will make it challenging to play the piano, not that I have done so in days or longer. Never mind my fleeting grasp on time. I knew where to plunge the nail in the crook of his leg to hit the artery, very close to the torso, to cause rapid and hopeless bleeding. And it went in like a knife, and I put my hand upon the wound as if trying to stop the bleeding. But instead, I absorbed the ichor until he was weakened. It was at this point when he had no choice but to lay on the floor that I cut up his arms so that they would bleed. I slashed at the center of him, eviscerated his legs, and massacred his face before laying upon him, and absorbed first his blood, and then his flesh, and lastly his bones through my very pores. I was left laying face down upon nothing, so thoroughly had I absorbed the man. We wore nothing but my own smile, provided by the entity from the tank, but upon my face nonetheless. The thing had me run my hand over any remaining drops or bits of the man. Its antenna protruded from my palm, and we cleaned the room until it was as if the man had never existed at all. I got back in the tank and waited for the guilt to come. When it did not, I knew I was lost. December 9th. I went into town to ascertain whether Mr. Newman's disappearance had been noticed. The entity indulged me in this activity, though it told me to remain quiet. Do not speak about the missing man directly. I followed instructions. What if it could squeeze my spine or eat me from the inside out? There was no talk about Mr. Newman. Gone in a blink, not every individual leaves a vacuum, and I fear I am the same, but I have been instructed not to entertain such ponderances at any length, so I will not. I bought a fresh-baked loaf of bread and shared it with Madeline as part of our supper. 
December 10th. Madeline's madness finally works for me. We needed to go to the ocean and could not shake her as she mumbled to us about Morgan. How easy it has been to forget my twin now that we truly have a constant companion. What an effortless endeavor leaving behind the inadequacy I held in my father's eyes, so opposite the impressions he had of Morgan, which I experienced firsthand several times when he mistook us. Such a pleasure to silence the words of my mother as she tried to compensate for the words and misdeeds of my father. This is the last we shall speak of these matters. They are undeserving of our time. to go into the sea in order to expel our first attempts at procreation into the brine. The tank was an almost preferable alternative to these unknowable waters, but the tank's centrality to us made it a dubious place to deposit our children. For there was the possibility that the tank's water is minerally deficient, and should the need arise to drain the tank with the children still tiny inside, we are unaware of the location of its output. Besides, we can survive without our children, who may not yet be viable, but all the parts of us that matter reside in the tank, which we could not live without. <laughs> there was a possibility of needing to dispatch Madeline, should things have gone wrong enough, but it was all quite smooth. I stood at the shore, and the little children crawled from my eyes like tears. They crawled too from my nose and mouth. I couldn't fully see them, but despite their abnormal form, close to that of the entity, I like to think that some of me was within them as well, despite that they were cyclopean and armored. Dozens of them crawled out to the sea, and when I was done, I cut in on Madeline's dance with no one, half sure that she would convince herself that I was Morgan. It is my belief that she caught our good mood, at least ever so slightly. December 11th. Hungry again, the entity and I left the manor in the middle of the night and we found a poor wretch, a vagrant, half froze to death. He was suspicious upon our approach, but all we needed was to get close enough to snap his neck and lay atop him as we had with Mr. Newman. And, just as then, we absorbed the unfortunate man through our pores and the sharp teeth mouth that our belly button can now become made quick work of his bones, expanding to quite a cavity in order to accommodate his skull and hips. Just as I thought that the snow would make quick work of any blood droplets that remained, we absorbed them through the pores in my feet before putting our clothes and boots back on and taking our leave, the entity guiding me sightless through the moonless night. December 12th. We are spending as much time as we can in the tank. It helps that we do not sleep. We want to make more in our image, and looking into my own body has left the entity curious about human reproduction, which I attempt to explain. December 13th. Something must be done about Madeline. Since the events of last year, she proclaims to fear fire above all else, but we found her in the parlor, alone in front of an uneaten meal, across from my own neglected plate, running her hand through a flame, lowering it with every pass through, until she knocked the damn thing over. Careless. <laughs> if we could, we would send her out west to Morgan yesterday. He is perhaps the only person alive willing to accept the burden of her, 
and has for whatever reason attributed the same quality to me. December 15th. Ah, last night. We cannot agree upon what to think of last night. I cannot hide my disgust and revulsion, while the entity assures me that I was chosen for my ability to not succumb to such base and human neurosis, and so I try to bury my thoughts unsuccessfully. I cannot hide anything from the entity, especially in the tank where we spend a considerable amount of our time. Madeline almost burned the house down. The entity and I had to put out a fire on the bookshelf, just as it grew to a size where it would have been impossible to do so, except that we were able to produce a fountain of water and bile from our mouth at will. And so we sprayed this across the flame and all that they encompassed. I could imagine drawing criticism for ruining books from my father or even Madeline, but my dear sister didn't even stop dancing to notice what was going on. We wrapped her up in our arms and led her back to her room, where the entity lay in bed with her and continued to embrace her, not just with our arms, but with all of me, as she mumbled Morgan's name. I had always thought that their closeness had limits, which would make me worse than the brother who suffered my judgment on more than one occasion, except that it wasn't me, it was the entity. I would never, she should not have let me. December 16th. We soothed each other in the tank. Our time of being concerned with Madeline is short, for whatever lay in her shall incubate as it will, and, once expelled, we will be done with her. She can go west, should she survive, and in the meantime, we keep her safe and let her occupy her dream world. December 20th. We tied Madeline up and put her in the tank. Except her mentions of Ethan Newman, who to the best of my knowledge she never met, all is going to plan. December 23rd. We can feel something good growing. It grows in my sister. It grows in the manor. When all comes to fruition, my children will rise from the sea and rescue me. Daniel was found in the tank the night of the second fire, journal next to him. Although it was retrieved and shared with those in charge of his care, it was his words that made it apparent that an asylum was necessary for him for the rest of his days. Curiously, the asylum, housed on an island for the safety of all, was destroyed by a natural phenomenon. There were no survivors or witnesses, but it was an oceanic event that demolished the building and the foundations were teeming with armored sea creatures that were otherwise unknown and described as otherworldly. Thank you for listening to the Domestic Aggressive Podcast. This has been The Entity, the second installment of the Year Without Summer Quartet. My name is Meredith Lindgren, and I wrote and read the episode. All sound design and music is by Nathan Paul. Mm-hmm.